With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Jonah Peretti is the CEO and founder of BuzzFeed, a digital media company that's worth more than a billion dollars. But before BuzzFeed, he co-founded The Huffington Post with three people, including Andrew Breitbart, who's the founder of one of the Trump administration's favorite websites. The Huffington Post was later acquired by AOL for hundreds of millions of dollars, and Jonah had a similarly high offer from Disney to acquire BuzzFeed a few years ago. But he ended up turning it down. When you want to work at a startup and build something, it's going to be really hard. And if you love that, if you love the struggle, and that's part of why you you do it, um, it also makes selling a company a, a, a lot less appealing. We're building a, a global news and entertainment company for the way the world works today instead of the way the world worked you know, 20 years or 80 years or 120 years ago. In an interview for Success How I Did It, Jonah discusses startup advice, the media industry, his career, and how he's building a digital empire. I also was able to sneak in a few timely questions about how BuzzFeed's newsroom decided to publish the Trump-Russia dossier and why Jonah wrote a lewd viral tweet about Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka. We had a mutual friend. She came out for drinks. We were doing sake bombs and like a dive bar in, in, in sort of lower Chinatown, Lower East Side. And, and, uh, and I was just like shocked that she said that. And it was like, what? All that and more is coming up. I'm your host and Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Allison Chantel. Jonah Peretti here with us today. He's the founder and CEO of BuzzFeed, which has been valued at more than a billion dollars. There's rumors might go public in 2018, and he previously founded the Huffington Post. So Guy clearly knows what he's doing. We're really happy to have you here with us today, Jonah. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, so I first off, we were just talking about how you're in California now, um, but BuzzFeed was founded in New York. So how many people are here? How many people are there? How big is BuzzFeed these days? Uh, we have about 700 people in New York and 600 in L.A. and with more video production in L.A., and more news people in, in New York uh, and about 1,500 globally. So we have offices in a lot of other um, cities around the world. Well, I want to talk about how you grew it to the size that it is, but first, can we go back to uh, growing up in California? You have a sister who's a comedian. You've always had this knack for making things go viral. The first thing I remember reading about you is this famous Nike letter that you wrote uh, that went viral when you were in college, I think? In grad school. In grad school. So what was the story behind that? Uh, I was doing what most students do, which is procrastinate. So I had to write my master's thesis and... And instead of writing my master's thesis, I was surfing the, the, the web, surfing the information superhighway. This was in Janu- uh, January of 2001. So 
um, still early, pretty early days of, of sort of internet culture. And I, Nike had just launched something called Nike ID where you could customize your shoes. And so I tried to custom, and you could put your, like, your, your name underneath the swoosh. And so I tried to customize a pair of shoes with the word sweatshop under the swoosh. And they rejected the order and wrote. So weird that they would reject that. Yeah. So we had this email exchange back and forth where they said, um, you know, it's inappropriate slang. And I said, no, it's in the dictionary. It means a shop or factory where workers toil under unhealthy conditions. And then they wrote back another excuse. And at the end, they said, look, we just reserve the right to not put that on the shoe. And I said, okay, I'll change the ID, but can you at least send me a picture of the 10-year-old Vietnamese girl who stitches the shoes together? And then they didn't write back after that. And I looked at this email correspondence, and this was before YouTube, before Facebook, before people thought of things going viral, but there were these things called email forwards. And I pasted this correspondence into an email, sent it to a few friends, then they sent it to their friends, and it became a, an early um, email forward, reached uh, you know millions of people, ended up on the Today Show. And even though I didn't know anything about sweatshops or labor issues, I ended up on the Today Show debating the issue with Nike's head of global PR and Katie Couric moderating. <laughs> um, and it opened up my eyes to the to the possibility of um, of of the fact that the media industry and media or not really the industry yet, but media was shifting so that if people thought something was worth passing on or sharing, you could reach millions of people, even if you don't own a printing press or a broadcast pipe or or the normal ways that you reach mass audiences. Well, that was your first viral viral taste, but then you also did other kind of gimmicks and pranks that sort of went viral. Like, what else did you do? Um, with my sister, I did something called the New York City Rejection Line, which was a phone number where if someone was hitting on you and wouldn't take no for an answer, you could give them your number. And when they called, they get an automated rejection message that would say that you know, the person who gave this number didn't actually want to see you again. You could press we one. should bring that back. I feel like that would be useful still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and then uh, we did a project called Black People Love Us, which looked like the personal website of two super white people that were so proud of having black friends that they created a whole website about it. A lot of, the, a lot of various types of projects. Then a- after that, did, did some political um, projects and did some projects with Ken Lair, who I later started Huffington Post with, um, along with Ariana um, and Andrew Breitbart. So talk about the gang kind of getting together for the founding of the Huffington Post, because you, know, you have Andrew Breitbart in there, and then you have Kenny Lair, and then you have Ariana Huffington and you. How did you all come together to form what ultimately became a huge company? Uh, it was uh, a lot of serendipity. You know, Kenny Kenny um, uh, heard about some of the viral projects I had done, and he um, was... Was he like one of the recipients of the prank phone call? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think he the Nike email he had seen and, and, had, and had heard about some of the work we were doing at iBeam. And so he stopped by and um, wanted to do some work on, on gun control, which was his issue, and was trying to understand how to use the internet to do that. And we did a few a few projects together there. Um, and then, you know, at the end of working together on a few things, he said, I, you know, I know, I know business, you know, the internet, let's start a company together. And we kind of shook hands, but we didn't know what we were going to do. Um, and then subsequently he went to, to LA and met Ariana Huffington and was amazed at how many people she knew and how connected she was to people in the world of business and entertainment and politics. And so many different worlds came together in, in Ariana's own personal network. And so, he kind of came back from this trip to L.A. and said, you know, so our company with Ariana. And I was like, what? And I was like Googling her and trying to, you know, it's like, who is this like fancy lady that we're in business with? And I said, listen, I'm going to go in business with someone. I need to meet her. And so I flew out to L.A. and I stayed at her house in Brentwood and woke up 
at like seven in the morning. She has already had a six a.m. meeting and was like, you know, had breakfast. And she was incredibly charming. And um, and and then I kind of flew back, thinking, oh, this is an adventure. We're gonna build something. Uh, and then Andrew Breitbart had previously worked for Ariana, and at the time that we started Huffington Post, he was working for the Drudge Report, and was really this this savant of internet news. And Kenny got very excited about the idea that the guy from the Drudge Report who spent, you know, it was sort of half the day Andrew would write headlines and half the day Matt Drudge would write headlines. And so Kenny got very excited about luring him to, to Huffington Post. And he joined us and, and before we launched the site and was one of the, the partners in the, in the business. Uh, and then just didn't last very long once the site launched because the site was too liberal for him. And he, he thought the site was going to be much more bipartisan and um and had trouble writing writing these kinds of liberal headlines and stuff so yeah so he's uh, unfortunately since passed away but you did have the chance to know him what do you think he and he's of course the founder of Breitbart uh which seems to be one of the Trump administration's favorites so what do you what do you think he would make of today what's become of his publication and what was he like yeah, he was this bouncing off the walls ADD million miles an hour tons of ideas lived on the internet um, kind of guy, and it was challenging to work with him, but but also a lot of fun. Um, and uh, he was uh, he was in some level re- a real internet troll. You know, he told me a story about how he was writing a headline on the Drudge Report about Chris Rock and how he loves Chris Rock and thinks he's hilarious, but the headline was like, shocking outrage, how can he host the Oscars when he makes all these inappropriate jokes? And he knew that he could write it exactly in a way that would cause, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, fiscal or or, um, uh, socially liberal conservatives to think it was funny and um, actual, like, um, you know, more more uh, family values conservatives to be outraged, and he knew how to find and find the line that would cause all the different cultural cracks to explode and have people bang into each other. And he loved it. You know, he loved that kind of thing. And so I think the the, the continued trolling of massive parts of the population by Breitbart um, and the Trump administration would be something that Andrew would love. I think he would um, have a more complex and nuanced view on Trump himself and on the policies and things like that. And it's hard to say um, since he passed away several years ago now um, what his views on that would be. But the trolling part he would absolutely love. So you all create Huffington Post. It becomes and still is a giant success. So you did figure out kind of how to merge um, these viral ideas. I mean, you seem to have just a natural knack for it, but then with also um, tech and algorithms and data. And that was the first time it's really been done before. Yeah, I think when you look at media, you always have to look at what what do new media technologies enable that was not possible before. So if you look at at something like cable, CNN could do 24-hour news, which was not possible before. And the reason you couldn't do 24-hour news on broadcast is you had primetime programming and other other shows and soap operas and game shows and all these other things. And so if you had to cut into that programming to show news. So if there's a big news event like the Iraq War. They couldn't cut into all their programming because it would destroy their, their their business. With cable, you could go 24 hours into a big story. And so CNN took advantage of the fact that you could do things on cable you couldn't do um, on, uh, on traditional TV. And I think every when you look at, um, at Internet media businesses, 
the one of the big things you get from the internet that you don't get in print and broadcast is feedback from the audience and this massive amounts of data that comes in that shows you what are people sharing what are people clicking how are people engaging when are they dropping off and if you're watching a video when do they stop scrolling um, what are they com- what kind of comments are they doing and it's a massive difference from a newspaper or broadcast uh, TV and that that difference is the key thing that you need to tap into if you're trying to build a, something in an industry um, uh, if you're trying to be a new entrant in an industry and you want to have some prayer of competing against these giant companies that are already in the industry like giant multi-billion dollar you know the Disney's and NBC's and all the all these big companies that already exist in media how do you compete with that you can't unless you figure out how to tap into something that is special and new about the the, the new medium that you're 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 in so you did that once and then while you're at Huffington Post you start what becomes BuzzFeed right you did that kind of while doing your job there yeah I was doing Huffington Post and BuzzFeed at the same time so how did that work uh, not very well <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I was going between our office in Chinatown at BuzzFeed and Soho, and um, I'd pick up, like, bomb in Vietnamese sandwiches on the way and, like, feed them to the HuffPost editors. And, um, and you know, BuzzFeed was more of a lab. It, it started in the last couple of years when I was, it started to be hard. I was spending most of my time at BuzzFeed and coming, going Monday mornings to HuffPost for the management meeting spending but then spending lots of time thinking about it um emailing a lot with paul barry who was this cto and about product and tech and growth um and it wasn't until huffpost sold to aol that i made a complete break and focused entirely on buzzfeed and it made a huge difference in the ability to to grow buzzfeed once once i was not also doing huffpost and so you describe early BuzzFeed as this lab of sorts. What was the first version? Was it something like I, an IM product almost, or how did you, how did it? Start? We had it, yeah. I mean, before we launched anything, we had something called BuzzBot that used IM, and it would it would we had this thing that we called a trend detector that was looking at um, it was looking it was we started with uh, our design advisor was this guy Jason Kotke, who was an early pioneering blogger, and he linked to lots of things. So we actually built a crawler that crawled out from his blog and um, found, um, I think, a 1,000 blogs, uh, kind of a network of a 1,000 blogs, something like that. Maybe it was 10,000. I can't remember. And then it would look for acceleration of links in the among that pool of influential bloggers. And it was, in a way, inspired or very much inspired by my friend Cameron Marlowe, who created something called Blogdex, which was, which was um, a kind of popular service in the early days of blogging that would track acceleration of links on blogs. But this wasn't public-facing. It was just for our editors, and, or I should say our editor, because it was just Peggy. <laughs> and uh, Peggy Wing was our, our founding editor, still works at the company. And she would look at this trend detector, and she would see, you know, what some, half of it was junk and some of it, and, you know, or spam or whatever, and some of it was interesting. And then she would write up little summaries of that. Um, but before we had a site and before she wrote the summaries, we had this thing called BuzzBot, and it would just, it would just IM you a link that, that made it to the top of the trend detector. So you'd kind of get this, this link sent to you. Um, the problem was IM only allowed something like 10 people to be connected at once or something. So it was a, it was a pretty fun product that only 10 people could use. So not the best business uh, 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 strategy. So then um, was it ever hard? It seems like it was almost viral from the start. Was traction ever difficult? Or do you have any tough times in the early days of BuzzFeed? Or was it sort of an instant hit? Oh, uh, it's it's always hard. 
I mean, it's hard now. It was hard then. Everything is hard. I mean, if you, the thing is, it's like I think of it as almost like a, a video game or exercise. Like if it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be fun. And what's the point? So at every point we, we were trying, it was it was fun. It was always fun, and it's still fun. But it's you're always trying to solve problems and new challenges, and you know, and, I mean, in BuzzFeed, like we've done a good job of in the early years of doubling every year, but it was from very small numbers, you know. So we'd be like we had three hundred thousand you know, monthly uniques or something like that. And then, you know, a year later, 600,000. And none of that was really material to, and none of that could support an ad business. Um, and so it wasn't until we got uh, uh, enough scale that that kind of growth all of a sudden put us in a position where we were, um, had some real scale that people even noticed. But we were pretty under the radar for a long time. And um, it's funny, like now there's this discussion where it's almost media companies are trying to make it cool to be niche and to be smaller. And they're saying like, oh, well, if we just have a small, loyal audience, it's who needs all that scale? Where do you, I mean, you've built that, a I mean, that's what scale. small companies say. Right. And that's what <laughs> we said. That that, that's what we said when we were small. There was a write-up about how smart it was that BuzzFeed, in a world of over information overload where tons of things are being being published, only does five or six things a day. And, and that that's, that, that, focus is so key and it's a new trend in media and I remember reading it thinking well yeah but we have one editor you know <laughs> like how are you know like I and you know now we publish hundreds of things a day right um and so you know and hundreds of things video and lists and quizzes and news and micro short content and longer shows and podcasts and the things that people like to read online they claim they don't actually like to read and they want to read lots of other more serious stuff. So I would say the, band, the brand has transitioned quite a bit. But how did you do that? Uh, I mean, the way we did it was an obsession with, with social. And social to us wasn't a category or a buzzword. It was people interacting with other people. And how, did they, how do you interact with another person in the world? And what we what I noticed with the Nike email and those early projects is that people were using content as a way to connect other people in their lives, and they were using content to express their identity or their political beliefs or their cultural beliefs, and they were using um, content to feel less alone. And in a way, content and communication had converged, where you weren't just consuming content, you were taking that content and sharing it with a friend as a way of connecting with another person in the world. And so that was really the key for us from the from the from the beginning, and so um, when we first started, the way that people were connecting with each other online were internet memes and humor, and cute animals. Um, and cute animals were an easy way to feel the same emotion as someone, and and, and to say ah together, and you feel closer to the person. Just the same way when everyone pets the family dog, they feel closer to each other, not just the dog. But they it's a way of connecting with other people. And humor was the same thing when you laugh with someone. It doesn't really matter what you laugh about. You just have shared that laughter, and you feel closer to someone when you've laughed with them. And so that was what, what initially was on Facebook and social platforms and even email forwards. And then what we saw is, is that social became much bigger, and people started to do that with news. They started to do it with all kinds of other forms of entertainment, with video and new formats and new, 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 um, new, um, and new platforms with Snapchat and you know Instagram. And so... That same human connection, that same idea of how do people connect with each other 
drove all of our expansion. And when people started to share news, we said, wow, we don't, we'd love to be in the news industry. We'd love to make, to, to be news. We didn't think we could because we, people weren't sharing news. And all of a sudden we started to see news on Facebook and Twitter and it made us realize we could go into that, into that business. So we've evolved along with the way consumers have evolved and the way social interactions have evolved online. It seemed like you guys were the first to capitalize on Facebook in a really meaningful way. Um, and kind of this idea that maybe people don't want to come to your website to read stuff. Maybe they want to read it on Facebook and that's okay. And uh-huh. um, what was your thought process around seeing the trend of everything going to distributed? I mean, the main thing, I, I think we figured this out through Zay Frank. Uh, we acquired his company when it was a four-person company and he was doing video um, in in LA and everyone else was in New York. Um, and he tried initially to put video on BuzzFeed's site and it didn't do nearly as well as when he put it on YouTube. And we started to also see, um, you know, so we started to see our video business really grow and it wasn't growing on our site. And we found ways that we could, because we were focused on branded content and native advertising that we could um, take all of our learnings from how we make a video and make a branded video and it could travel on YouTube and we could still make money. So that was another piece of it. And then looking around at the industry, started to realize that all these all these publishers are based on banner advertisements, and banner advertisements don't really scale well to to mobile. I mean, like not scale in the growth sense, but like when you scale them down to a mobile screen, they don't really work that well. Um, and also that banner ads require getting people to a site where you can run a banner. And because we weren't doing banner advertising, and because we already had seen with video how how distributed media. Um, could re- work both as a business and for c- the consumer. We said, wait, why would why would we fight against the consumer desire to consume media in these apps? Why don't we lean into it instead and monetize it with with native content, you know, branded content, native advertising? Um, and instead of having this proliferation of all these links that are telling you to go somewhere else, just put the content there. Like turn the link into a content, into content, and then instead of having to click a link and then go find it somewhere else, you could consume it right away and it sort of cut out a step. And so we went from having you know billions of impressions of our links on uh, these social platforms to having billions of content views on the social platforms because you could just consume it right right there. So one thing that happened as a result of all this success is that you had outside parties now interested in BuzzFeed Mm -hmm. and potentially acquiring BuzzFeed. Um, One tough decision that you have to make as a CEO is do you stay the course or maybe do you exit? And I think it's been well reported now that Disney was very interested in buying you all a couple years ago. And in the final hour, you decided not to sell. What was that process like? As CEO, how do you walk away from all that money that's right there, sitting there dangling like a carrot? How did you think about everything? Yeah, um, I guess I, I feel like um, some of these things come down to almost a, an emotional, you know, feeling. And and but I think that the kind of gut feeling and emotional feeling actually is informed by a lot of data and like looking at at uh, at, at at things. Um, in a rational way also but the 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 biggest the biggest thing for me is i felt they had many more things to do um as a company that we valued our independence a lot it felt like that that we would be able to do a lot more as an independent company um and if you think about you know the the time when we had a had some conversations with disney we were 
we still hadn't, we were just hiring Mark Schuess to do our investigative journalism team. And that was like still, you know, not, not uh, uh, like that was just starting. And video we had been doing for a little bit, but was growing like that. And nobody, and we knew that it was going to be huge. And now it's, you know, more than half our revenue. We knew it was going to be huge, but it was at the time people thought it was just a website. So it felt like there was a lot of shifts coming and there was a lot of opportunity. There were a lot of things we wanted to do and remaining independent company just felt in my gut and my bones felt like the right, the right path. And it's certainly a lot harder now seeing as the way that the industry has changed. You ever think like, Oh, I just sold to Disney. I wouldn't have to figure out this video thing. I would have to do all these things that the industry is changing so much. Yeah. I mean, I think you shouldn't be a CEO or, or run or even, you know, even a startup executive or employee if you don't like things that are hard and challenging and that you don't like trying to do things that are difficult where you have to figure out new things that don't exist yet like that has to be part of why you do it it has to be part of the of the of the fun i think what you know they say when there's a when there's a, a bubble or lots of money flows into startups you have a lot of people who come in because they want to make a lot of money and and it feels like oh i want to you know the, the whole uh, get rich quick thing or something like I want to do something where it doesn't take that much work and I'll make a lot of money who I'm reading stories about startups and all the money in startups. And, and it's just a lot harder than, than it looks, you know, but it's and harder meaning that the, the day to day is, is of create, trying to create something new and trying to be a small little guy in a giant industry. Even now, you know, we're, we're, you know, 1500 employees and growing quickly and things are going incredibly well, but compare that to the size of Disney or the size of, you know, Time Warner, it's, you know, we're small and, and, um, or, or the size of, of some of the uh, platforms that we, um, you know, that we're very complimentary to, but are in the digital media space of like Facebook or, you know, YouTube. Um, so, so when you want to have a little, when you want to work at a startup and build something, build something, it's going to be really hard. And the, the if you, if you love that, if you love the struggle, <laughs> and that's part of why you, you do it, um, it also makes selling a company a, a, a lot less appealing because if, if the idea is, you're doing that so you can relax or something if you know you you wouldn't be building the company in the first place if you if your goal was to relax right no that's (laughs) entirely true um well so and it's the decision that you made and you felt like you need to do and it seems you've grown tremendously since then seems like the right choice um there you did lose john steinberg was with you for a big part of the first half of your company yeah he left shortly after how um how do you how do you go from someone who's an integral player to like keep the company afloat and keep it going stronger afterwards after there's a big executive change or like a co-founder leaves or a partner leaves or someone who's been really helpful to the company? Uh, I would say um, usually for the most part, it's, 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 um, it, it, well, I'm trying to think the right way to answer this. It, it's hard in an immediate sense of, of you have someone who's very active and doing lots of things um, and you need to figure out how do you organize and how do you get things done. I think people often underestimate or sorry, people often overestimate the value of individual people. And and partly that's because a active like a found like people. This happens with founders a lot. Like people think that the key to everything is the founder and the founder is the one on the cover of the magazine and the founder is the one who who. Um, is the source of all the success. And the truth is that, uh, you know, 
I think um, that particularly once a company gets a little bit bigger uh, and there's more people involved and there's very talented people from all with all different experiences who come together, you're, 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 you, it really becomes a team thing. And you really start to see that when there's a gap, there's a million people, a million other people pick up the slack, people step up, people who you didn't think could do it, step up and take on uh, a role. People want the company to succeed and they want to, the company to thrive. And when somebody leaves and, it, and it's tough, you see a lot of people step up and fill fill the void. And it's really actually pretty inspiring that there's a resiliency to a company and that the team is a real thing. And, and, um, and, and so, you know, it can be, it can be hard, but I think also companies are systems and their people and their operations and their business model. And all those things are bigger than any one person. Um, and even bigger than, than, uh, a founder or a senior, senior exec. Great. Um, well, that's great advice. Thank you. Uh, so I have a couple questions that are uh, more kind of about recent times. Um, one is you all made some splashes during the campaign and I'm also post-election. You know I have to ask you, what was up with that Ivanka Trump tweet? So you tweet, <laughs> if you didn't know this story, I have to ask. Okay, you tweet seemingly out of the blue. <laughs> I think I have it here about Ivanka Trump. I met her once and she casually said, I've never seen a mulatto cock. I'm sorry, I had to say it, but I'd like to. What was the thought process behind sending that tweet before Donald Trump or Hillary, the election even happens? It's right before, it's like October. We were like, are you are you drunk? Are you okay? Well, you know, you know how like if you meet a celebrity, you have like the story of like, oh, the time I met this person and, and you kind of remember, yes. remember it. Yes. So I, you know, that not every, hard to forget. Not I everyone's met a celebrity, guess. but a lot of people have had this experience. If you live in New York or LA, where it's, it, you know, you, you know, like whatever this, what, whatever the person came into the restaurant you're in and they did something funny or whatever, and you remember it. Um, so for me, that was what I remembered about Ivanka. Like we had a mutual friend. She came out for drinks. We were doing sake bombs and like a dive bar and in, in, in sort of lower Chinatown, Lower East Side, and and. Uh, and I was just like shocked that she said that, and it was like what, like, um, and 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 so, um, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't like t- tweet it or share it. It was just one of those things you say to a close friends or something. But then there was a story. I was like reading my. I got off a flight and I was in the Burbank airport and I was reading my timeline and uh, reading Twitter, and there was like a a. a tweet that it was a buzzfeed news story that had quoted her saying she was shocked at her father's language and something like that yes and i just like saw it and i was like what she's shocked like she uses like that kind of language like why how how could she be saying she's shocked by her dad's language like she's some like you know like choir boy or what i don't know what the you know like some kind of um uh anyway so i so so that was that was that i saw that and then without really thinking much obviously because you wouldn't tweet that if you were thinking a lot I, I just like retweeted that tweet with a comment of like funny she'd be shocked by it because this is what she said the one time I met her. I yeah. remember Ben Smith, your head of news, saying you're like, uh, are there medics on this flight? <laughs> like you of all people should know to not tweet before flying. But yeah, because you were yeah. off the plane. I was getting off the plane, but yeah, they were. They were, I I did kind of get very kind of quiet after that. I didn't like follow yeah. up with additional explanation or tweets. Right. Well, I think you're. If I remember correctly, BuzzFeed wrote an article interviewing you about what your tweet yeah, was. Yeah, well, I mean, that was like Shawnee calls me 
and I can't like not take the call when it's Shawnee calling me. And then she's like, I'm calling. And who not- say who Shawnee is? Yeah, she's uh, she's our uh, I don't know exact her exact title is she like runs runs like U.S. News or something. You know, that's but I'm sorry, Shawnee, that I. Didn't- <laughs> um, she's like a very key, key and important and powerful person in our newsroom. Um, and she she calls me and is like, I'm you know I have a reporter here that wants to talk to you or you know, and, and I was like. Oh, I never would have taken a call from any other news source, but I have to when it's like, yeah, what's in your employee? Yeah, yeah. When I, you know, I have to like answer the phone. So anyway, then I did kind of some awkward interview with a BuzzFeed employee about yeah. why I sent it. And did even you talk to Ivanka? I haven't talked to her now. Um, so one other more serious thing that you all published was the dossier. Um, this is the Donald Trump P tape origins. Yeah. allegedly um you all make this decision you find this document that's been circulating around apparently all of washington obama's read it donald trump has apparently been briefed on it and it's got a lot of different allegations in it and you publish it with you know, you say we don't haven't verified everything in it we tried we spent weeks sitting on this thing but we feel like you the public deserve to see it because frankly all of washington has hmm. and it created this storm kind of within media of should they have should they not have we debated it in our newsroom what was it like for you all and what was it like for you as a ceo of the company deciding to publish this uh i would say uh in retrospect we feel like we made the right decision when you have a a document circulating the highest levels of government and people are taking action based on the document it's having an effect on on you know we have harry reid referencing it but not saying what's in it and in a letter that was public and you have cnn you know referencing it but not saying what's in it how's the public supposed to supposed to understand what's happening at the highest levels of government in a you know incredibly important um um you know something that's incredibly important to the country and to the democracy and if they if they can't see the thing that everyone in power is looking at and so um for us the 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 decision you know we don't see ourselves as being uh the a news outlet that's trying to tell our tell people how to think and tell people what what matters we try to t- uh, inform people let people know what's going on be transparent with our readers make our assume that our readers have uh and are, are intelligent and can understand context that we that we provide um and so that that it, it fit it fit our values uh, uh, it fit BuzzFeed News's values to to make the decision to publish. Well, um, a few wrap up questions. Um, what is what is BuzzFeed and what is its future? Are you the next Disney? Are you the next NBC? What are what are you building here? Yeah, I think every time there's been a massive shift in in technology of media, there's been a few companies that have emerged that that ha- are are large, sustainable. You know. 100 year companies you know so when you look at the the there was a period of tons of people starting newspapers that coincided with roads and be able to deliver newspapers and a few of them became you know really huge enduring um companies when you look at um magazines it was really the postal service that enabled magazines you could deliver magazines to people's houses and also rise in literacy and and there were lots of magazines started and then consolidation and a few you know time inc and Conde Nast and a few that became really really big um the same thing happened in in the 80s with cable and you actually can talk to people who experienced that and um and and there was lots of of proliferation of of cable channels that then ended up as becoming a few big 
big companies. And I think with internet media, you're going to see you're going to see something similar. And we want to be one of the one of the the, the ones to emerge from this era, um, redefining how news and entertainment should work for the era of of, of digital and, and the internet and mobile and social. And and it feels like there's a possibility to build a media company that's much more connected with people's lives, that is. Um, has a much more intimate relationship with readers that serves readers, whether it's news or entertainment or things like tasty and, and um, uh, service and lifestyle uh, content. Uh, and um, I think we're also very well positioned as a company um, with all the advances that are happening in machine learning and deep learning and, and um, technology that's going to also um, really advance what's possible in media. Um, and. And, and so we're building a, a global news and entertainment company for the way the world works today instead of the way the world worked, you know, 20 years or 80 years or 120 years ago. Do you ever regret raising so much money? Because there's an, there's an argument to be made that, you know, I think TechCrunch sold for $30 million, um, Huffington Post sold for $300 million, the Ariana and um, Mike Arrington, the founders, co-founders of each, maybe made about the same. Um, one was much smaller, didn't raise really much money, and one raised a ton. You've raised, I, I don't know, how, how many millions? Ten, hundreds of millions. Uh-huh. Do you ever think I should have just gone a little smaller? No, I don't. <laughs> but... But I think it has to do with what you want to do and what you're what what you want to build. And so, like my advice is 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 like there's not one path, there's not one way to skin a cat. Like you see arguments online sometimes where people are like, "You should raise a lot of money. You shouldn't raise money. You should raise a little." Or you know, and, and it's like it's like totally depends on what you're doing and also what you're good at and what kind of life you want to live. And if you are excited about building something that grows really fast and and has a lower chance of success but could be giant, you should try to raise venture capital and you should try to raise a lot of it if you're trying to build something really big as soon as you have signal that you're onto something and and that you can you can deploy that capital to to, to do something useful. And if you're someone who is uh, you know, has a special skill or wants to be an artist or wants to do something that 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 you can do with with a small core group of people, then you shouldn't raise venture capital. And you shouldn't feel bad if you don't do the venture capital or if you do it or whatever. You should feel bad if you're doing something that isn't the right fit for you and isn't the thing that you're passionate about and doesn't fit your your strengths and 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 your your the things that you're interested in doing. I mean I know people who like what they want to do is is think and write and you know and that's great like and you can be really successful and there's multimillionaires who are writers you know so it's not even you know if that's what you're best at you know you could be Malcolm Gladwell or something right um who's I think probably richer than Ariana or Michael Arrington so 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 it you know you you, you could but that doesn't mean you should not raise venture capital you should try to be like Malcolm Gladwell or something you know you should you should do what's right for you and what fits your temperament and your and your passion so I was going to end with an advice question and asking if you had any, but I think you kind of wrapped it up. So I should let you get out of here unless you've got anything else to add for someone who wants to build an empire like you're doing. Uh, well, if you want to build an empire, I think that, you know, I kind of, ac- you know, accidentally, reluctantly, you know, found my way into building something that was much bigger than I expected. But I think starting starting small with uh, focusing on on the, the customer or the audience, um, 
solving problems for them and focus on that small thing and then figure out how do you scale that into something much bigger and and then um, and then once you if, if you are, are trying to build something really big then you just need to figure out how do you find really great people that you trust that you can jo- that can join your team and be part of the part of it with you and and be real because um, that's really the the key to to everything is you can't do it all on your own you need to have really great smart people like people like Dow and Zay and you know Ben Kaufman with new in the product lab and all, all these these people who who um, have a unique perspective and are way better at their jobs than I am and I would never be able to do what they do and 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 that's that's what you need so I think that's the other thing if you want to build something really big you have to be okay with the fact that you're not going to be able to be in the weeds on everything and you're not going to be able to micro you shouldn't be micromanaging everything and you need people who can do things way better than you can in the areas where they're what's the right way to end the sentence <laughs> sometimes i start sentences and then have to have we to make up how to off. how to end it just like the end of the podcast and just like in the podcast like uh or just like end with er that sounds great uh, you need to find people who are better at speaking than you also, you know. So. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so right. much, Jonah. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Success, How I Did It. For more episodes, subscribe on Acast or iTunes. You can also check out more interviews that we've done with the founders of Tinder, Bleacher Report, Warby Parker, and more.